Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. There the Lord commands Israel um, not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And in context, they're journeying in the wilderness. And he says, I will give you instruction in your journey to test you, to know what's in your heart. Amen. And so instructions are given to us to know what's in our hearts. Not to inform God because he knows everything, but his testings is more for our sake than for his. When he said to Abraham, now I know what's in your heart. It's not that he didn't know what was in his heart all along, but it's more for Abraham's information than for his own. It's causing us to come into a knowledge of a knowledge that God already has of us. And the only way that God unveils this, unveils that reality to us is through instruction. So every time a command is given and you obey, you come to discover things about yourself that God already knows. Okay? Everyone say, now I know. Now. Come on, say it like you know. Now I know. Okay? Now I know. And God says, now I know what's in your heart. It's like when you ask Adam, Adam, where are you? It doesn't mean he didn't know where Adam was. But he wants to know Adam where he is. Okay? He wants, to know, he wants Adam to know his location in reference to himself. So where is Adam in relationship to him? And so every act of obedience becomes an opportunity to discover things about yourself in God that he has already set in eternity past. Every act of obedience, you begin to uncover um, power. You begin to uncover possibility. You begin to discover yourself as God originally made you. Every time you obey. However, every time you disobey, you lose ground in the Spirit and you detract from the making of the Lord in terms of what He has made you to be originally. Now, tonight's study is session four in the series on the primacy of the Word of the Lord, and I've chosen to review Luke chapter 24. I know it was read here in in, in service last week in my absence, and I was grateful for that because it's it's a passage that needs decoding. We will probably take two weeks to do this. We'll start tonight and conclude next week. I love this portion because it's so loaded with, with present truth. Also in terms of what we are, are stressing, the primacy of the word of the Lord, you will never ever know God outside of the scriptures. You will never discover God outside of the Logos. If you neglect the Logos, your knowledge of God is going to be stunted. And um, you will never ever come into fullness of relationship or experiential knowledge of Him. God is a genius in that He's hidden Himself in the Word of the Lord. And to discover God, we have to discover Him in and through His Word. Now, let's read the text just so that we are fully acquainted with it. Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Amen. 
You love the word of the Lord? Eh? This is a school of ministry after all, so we read the scriptures. Amen. And there's powerful um, grace released even in the simple reading of the scriptures. Amen. So let's proceed. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came into the sepulcher bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. It came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout. Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of more men, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Now that's very important. Jesus told them that he would rise on the third day. It's now the third day his body is not in the tomb. Angelic beings stand and say, But this shouldn't be a surprise to you. Didn't he tell you this? The scripture says they remembered his, they remembered his words. Very important, verse 8. That he turned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women that were with them which told them or told these things unto the apostles. Now, the, their words seemed to the apostles as idle tales. Hmm? Note, their report, their testimony of what they had seen, an empty tomb, an angelic witness saying he's not here, that report seemed to the original twelve that walked with the Lord as an idle tale. Right? Yes, apostolic unbelief. Okay. And they believed them not. It's amazing, eh? You can be so rich in doctrine, so rich in experience, and fail to enter practically into a reality of Christ at any level. A, these are lessons for us to lessons for us to learn. Then arose Peter and as his usual self. Remember this was the guy who was the first to opt to walk on the water? Right? So he responds almost typically in his nature, and he runs to the grave, the tombstone, the sepulcher. Stooping down, and he beheld the linen cloths laid by themselves and departed, wondering in himself at that which was, which was come to pass. Now here is where we kick off. And behold, two of them, that's his two disciples, not of the original twelve. Two of them were going that very day to a village, village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached. When does Jesus approach? Question, when does Jesus approach? While you are talking and discussing. And began traveling with them. And their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, 
what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? Then they stood still, looking sad. You can write there, inaccurate emotional condition. Inaccurate emotional condition. Sad in the wrong season. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here these days? Haven't you read the Daily News? Haven't you heard CNN or read the Jerusalem Times? Right? And he said to them, What things? Acting totally ignorant. The, the risen Christ has, is in their midst. They are prevented from recognizing him, and he's acting totally dumb, right? He asked, what things? Okay. They said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel, Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body and came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, now notice the description that Jesus attaches to unbelieving disciples. Fools, oh foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory. Then, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Remember last week we spoke about the value of the Old Testament? Of how that every single Old Testament book has the capacity to lead Christ out of the book. Jesus here demonstrates this. He starts with the Torah, the law of Moses. Right? Right? The, the, the law of Moses and the entirety of the prophets. And he begins to explain things about himself in the Old Testament. Lead himself out of the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going and he started to act. Or he acted as though he was going further. Jesus can, is a good actor too. Okay. Just checking these guys out, assessing them. I'll talk about this more. Checking their their desire and their, and their priorities. So he pretended he was going to go past Emmaus. They urged him saying, stay with us because it's getting towards evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and breaking it and he began giving it to them. Then the eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning 
within us while he was speaking to us on the road and while he was explaining the scriptures to us. Love that verse. Was not our heart burning while he was explaining the scriptures to us? The word burn in the Greek there implies to light a candle and it implies fervent internal zeal or a movement of the heart. You can write the movement of the heart, literal Greek interpretation. There was something pulsating within us as he spoke the scriptures to us. And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those that were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen, and he has appeared to Simon. Listen carefully. What angels could not do, the word could. Angelic testimony, angelic testimony could not convince these guys of a reality, but an explanation to the word did. Now they believe. And they, were, they convinced the, the eleven and the other disciples that Jesus has truly, Jesus has truly risen. Now listen carefully. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. While they were telling these things. I just like this focus on telling, talking, discussing. God always draws near when conversation is accurately centered in his word. Hmm? While they were telling these things, he himself stood in the midst and he said to them, Peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh, and bones have you see, I have. And when, they had, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a fish of boiled fish. And he took it and he ate it before them. He said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He opened, circle verse 45 is critical. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that Christ would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you stay in the city until you be clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he departed from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshipping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Amen. Awesome passage. An awesome passage of scripture. Amen. What we want to focus on is, what are... Principles that we could learn from this passage. 
in terms of the, pri- the theme we are exploring, the primacy of God's word, what are the factors that make conducive Christ to unveil himself to us through the scriptures? Jesus has died. It's the third day he's risen from the dead. This is the first post-appearance or post-resurrection appearance of the Lord. Right? And in his post-resurrection, he reveals to us in this narrative a methodology he has chosen to use to show himself to men. The methodology is simple. He will, he will, he will lead himself from out of the word to you to show you who he is. It would be easy not so to just say to the guys, never mind Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, never mind the scriptures, just look at the physical evidence on my body. I am he who was dead, I'm now alive. See my hands, see my feet. He does that only later on as an additional testimony to his first port of call to prove who he was, and that was by revealing himself from out of the word. Amen? So he does not appeal to physical evidence to justify or validate who he is. Rather, he has chosen to to extract himself from out of the writings of the Logos to show himself to men. And I submit to us tonight, his methodology has not changed. He is still working the same principles even in our day. And if you, like we said in our last study, the word of God reveals the nature of God. Not so? The word of God reveals the nature of God. If you're going to be a partaker of divine nature, you're going to have to be, and you're going to have to uncover his nature by allowing him to show you who he is through his revealed word. Neglect the word and you neglect the possibility for revelation of himself to you. So every time you neglect your Bible study, you neglect the mirror, which I'll talk about next week. This is a mirror that reveals the glory of the Lord. This, this, this eternal logos, this engrafted word, every time you neglect this book, you neglect an opportunity for him to show himself to you. You neglect the word, you neglect the self-disclosure of God. Amen? I, I entitled this, I think it's on your note, The Long Walk to Divine Disclosure. Okay, we have the long walk to freedom here, <laughs> in terms of Nelson Mandela. Well, this is the long walk to divine disclosure. Approximately seven miles translates, um, the Greek word a mile is stadia, stadia, and depending on which definition you use, it will translate to anywhere between 10.4 to 12 kilometers long. The journey was from Jerusalem to Emmaus. So they're moving away from the hub of spiritual activity, which is Jerusalem. And they're going, if you know your map, your Palestinian map, where Jerusalem is, Emmaus would be slightly northwest of Jerusalem, approximately 12 kilometers. And this, they walked. Okay? This was a walk. Imagine walking for 12 kilometers and discussing the word. 
Imagine walking for 12 kilometers and you have the Logos himself showing you himself from out of Moses and the prophets. Imagine that. Initially it was first Moses and the prophets. And later on, when he appeared to all of the disciples, he reveals himself from Moses, the law. Sorry, Moses, the law which is Moses, the the prophets and the the Psalms. Right? Now, firstly, so, are you ready to uncover some principles? My, 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 My focus is now, what can we learn from this? What principles can we extract and make certain we have in our journey in God that will make it easy for Him to disclose Himself to us through His Word? Amen? The first issue is oneness. Everyone say oneness. There were two disciples. And two is the number, as you see in your notes, the number of agreement, witness, or, or testimony. I've quoted Amos 3.3 3 there. It says, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? So whenever I think these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, I can't help but think of this scripture. Because it says, Can two people walk together unless they be agreed? So here were two disciples in absolute agreement, harmony, accord, oneness with each other on several things which I will talk about now. Right? And I want to say this to us. That state of agreement, that state of unity, is the most ideal context that facilitates the revelations and disclosures of God of Himself to His people. I want to say also... Have a disunited context. Have a divided house. And guess what? You are bought powerful revelations of God to that house. That's why we must guard the unity of the saints. Why? We want God to reveal himself to us. What is God? Jesus prayed in the garden and said, Yeah, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Oneness is akin to his nature. Oneness is so central and pivotal to who he is that if he sees a context within his body that is one, he's attracted to what he's like. He is one, so he's pulled, a magnetic pull, an attractive pull to that which accurately defines who he is. Amen? So, the disclosure or the... You see the Bible says he drew near to them. You will never get the drawing near of the Lord to a disunited context. I guarantee you, if these guys were arguing left, right, and center, right, with each other, right, about even theologically, you would not have got the drawing near of the Lord to them. Right? The Bible actually says they were of one heart. Now, if you look in Luke 24, 32, I'm quoting the New American Standard Bible. It says, they say, we're not our hearts. Now, you should drop the S there. Because for those of you that do have the New American Standard Bible, there is a one before that verse starts. And you must read your marginal rendering. There's a marginal rendering of the same verse in that Bible. And the marginal rendering says, did not our heart in the original Greek. Now, it's two men walking... But they say, did not our heart. 
as the King James says. They said to one another, did not our heart burn? Not hearts. Now there's something grammatically wrong with that sentence, not so? Because two men have two hearts. <laughs> They're walking, two of them, and they say, did not our heart burn? Right? So that tells me these two guys were one in spirit, one in mind, one in judgment, as Paul would say. There are many ones of Paul. I call them the ones of Paul. Please, some of you must study this. He says, be of, the, be of one mind, be of one judgment, have the same speech, all expressions of, of oneness, right? Be of one mind. So these two men were, of, were so tight, were so united, the scriptures, or in their own words, they describe their, their state, the two of them, as one heart. Paul said this of Timothy, I have no other son who is like Minded. Uso sikos in the Greek. I have no other son, some versions say, who is equal in soul to me. So Paul and Timothy in his description literally says, we are one soul. Hmm? We are one heart. Amen. Tell your neighbor one heart. I like that term, eh? one heart. We must use it for something. One heart. Two men having one heart. It's to that context that the, the Lord draws near and decides to disclose himself to. Now, let's just labor this point a bit to show you how important it is. When Nehemiah left Babylon and he came back to um, Jerusalem, and after the rebuilding of the wall, he sought to rebuild the spiritual lives of people. They were in Babylon captivity for 70 years. In 70 years, they had not heard the scriptures. I think it's a long time. Long time eh? It's a literal generation or two, generation and a half, or a generation and three quarters that did not hear the word of the Lord. Now he comes and he sees, sure, he sees so many inaccuracies in lifestyle. He, he calls Ezra the scribe. Ezra the scribe with 13 other scribes. Ezra being the lead scribe amongst the 13. Together with him, they make 14. 14 is 7 plus 7. 7 is a depiction of perfection. Twice that is double perfection. This is like a scribal leadership that is, that is perfect in their representation. What do they do? He builds a wooden podium. Read the scriptures carefully. They build a wooden podium and they ask Ezra to stand centrally. And he, the Bible says he opened the book of the law and he read for six hours, giving explanation to what he read. Look at Nehemiah 8 verse 1. This is the position of the people. All the people gathered as one man. How is that? Two men walking, the Bible says they got one heart. Yet a whole nation stands, and what God sees is not a whole nation. God sees one man. When you gather in, Oneness. And oneness goes one level beyond unity. Some people still grappling with unity. Now we're saying unity is fine, yes. Unity uh, precedes oneness in, in, a, in, a respect, in, in, a, in a sense, right? But oneness is what is being stressed in the current season. And I want to encourage you, our congregation, this local house, and the houses that some of you come to 
from, from your own churches. You must stand as one. You must fight the spirit of, of, of division strongly. You know why? It's going to rob much of the download that God desires to, to bring. The Bible says there stood as one man at the square which was in front of the, the water gate. Underline water gate. I think it's so apt that they stand in front of the water gate. Why? Why? Because water is a representation of the word. And there were these 12 gates around the city. But they meet at the basin or the square which was in front of the water gate. Water depiction of the word of God. And the Bible says, And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. Literally the first, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which the Lord had given to, to Israel. Right? And if you read, um, I would encourage you, go home tonight. Later on in the series, I can't wait to get into it, to study Nehemiah 8. You, you will get to unpack Nehemiah 8, but already started to get it into your system. You'll see profound things happening. They read for a quarter of a day. quarter of 24 is six hours. And everybody, nobody is going home. Everybody is fully attentive. What the Bible says, when he had concluded reading, it says, and everybody shouted, Amen! Amen! And they bowed their heads and they worshipped the Lord God. Think about not hearing scriptures for 70 years. And suddenly there's this reformation of the word of the Lord is becoming central to your life. And these people are so overawed. I, I wrote in your notes here, it's nothing short than supernatural to stand attentively and intelligibly to engage the word of the Lord for a quarter of a day. Psychologists tell us that human concentration span does not allow for that. <laughs> right? But let me just say this. I think whenever there's a context of unity and oneness where people stand as one man, then grace is released to that community of people to engage the word of the Lord at a much more profounder level than in other congregations. Your assimilative capacity is increased when you function from a place of oneness. Function in disunity and people start getting, fatigue will get a hold of you. You know, I marvel when we go to Thamo schools or the Sons Fellowship. The Sons Fellowship is we, the forum we have before the actual school of ministry. And we can go on and on and on for hours on end, talking and teaching and informally discussing the word, and nobody's getting tired. I really believe with all of my heart, there's a concentration grace given to a community that operates as one. Let me just say this to you. In your lifetime, the average lifetime is about 70 years old, not so, more or less. Give or take a few years. Right? I don't know what the life expectancy now is in South Africa. I, haven't, I don't know the stats, but I know when I was growing up, they say 70. Maybe 50 today, I don't know. Right? Maybe less. Okay, I'm not sure. In any case, let's say the average person lives to, let's say, 60. Let's be gracious, 60. Right? Right? A person living for 60 years old, even if that person engages God's word every single day of their lives, for the entire day for 60 years, will not live long enough to know all that there is to know about God. It's simply impossible. 
And what, what ails my heart is I see we, so-called apostolic people, are so privileged to have access to profound revelation, and yet we carve out in our day the fragments, the dregs of our time to devote to this activity of engaging the word of the Lord. And, you, and yet we expect huge results with limited input. Amen? I'm, I'm so... Dr. Segi asked Sean at the conference in Santon. Sean was on another level. Everyone noticed a distinct um, growth in understanding, in presentation, in comprehending the word of the Lord. Dr. Segi asked him, Dr. Segi is telling me this. I asked Sean, oh, did he say it publicly? He said it publicly. I asked Sean, um, Sean, I noticed you on a vastly different plane. How do you spend your day? Sean's response was, nothing but the word of the Lord. Nothing but prayer. No other thing draws them. No other thing is, 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 is am I so passionate about than the word of the Lord. And there was a huge encouragement to all of us. In this local house, we're stressing the primacy of the word. Come on, say for me, primacy of the word. I am not concerned about anything else, honestly. If, you are, if this book is not your delight, if the scriptures are not your priority, then you're lacking in your sonship. Because this is what, if I'm your spiritual father, I'm stressing this. Follow me as I follow Christ. Esteem and value this book. Let me just say this. Why I'm saying this is, if in our oneness, we prioritize the same thing. If the same, if the same object, objective, if the same target is, is common to all of us, goes a long way to uniting us. Hmm? I read a note, I was reviewing one of the schools of ministry today, and I put the note on, the, on, on Facebook and on the BBM. Thamo said this, God wants to erect himself in us so forcefully, and we become so wordful that there's nothing else left but word in us. We have to be word people. Amen? So I want to encourage you, maintain the state of oneness. Maintain the state of unity. If we turn over the next page, there are just some additional scriptures um, for your consideration. Just for the sake of the recording, I'm going to mention them. They are Second Chronicles 30 verse 12, Acts 2, 46, Acts 4, 32, Haggai 1, 12, and Exodus 19 verse 8. The last two scriptures are very important. Listen carefully. I wrote in the note. Consider this also. Where there's a strong established state of oneness and agreement as a position in the sight of God which, in which God's word is received, then the capacity for widespread corporate obedience becomes a reality. When oneness becomes commonplace, when it becomes all-pervasive, when it becomes the norm here, and like, you know, in, in, in Christendom today, the norm is disunity, the norm is disharmony. I, any local church, you... you you would almost, if, if I go to any local congregation and you want to you bet, it's either the bet is unity or disunity in that con. Let's check it out. 
I guarantee you most times the guy who bet on this unity is going to win the bet. Hmm? And I'm saying can't we change the legacy? Can't we change the status quo? The context of unity is going to grab and recruit the attention of the Lord. Like he drew near to the two on the road to Emmaus, he will draw near to us. Unpack himself profoundly through revelations from his word to us. And then when that happens, what I'm saying in this note is that the possibility for widespread obedience to what we've heard being revealed to us becomes a reality. And look at these scriptures. Haggai 1.12, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice. Wouldn't it be a wonderful day when all the people obey the voice? It's not just some people here and there, but everybody is obeying. Widespread corporate obedience. Hey? How, would, how would you, Dion, like a church where there's 100% people paying their tithes accurately, consistently for five years? And you will never ever have to teach tithing again. Talking about widespread, consistent. How would you like it in your church if there's consistent forgiveness manifested for offenses? The devil will not have a chance to get into that, that group. Why? The flavor is obedience. The culture is obedience. It is so forceful, it is everybody's doing it. And if somebody cry, comes into that context and attempts not to do it, Guess what? Stand out like a sore thumb. And the very culture convicts you. The word now becomes a culture that when the person walks in there, that culture ministers to the, to the person. That, hey, I'm out of alignment here. I need to get into the culture. Corporate, widespread obedience. Amen. I like Exodus 19. I just threw these two in this afternoon. All the people answered, verse 8, answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. I like that. Repeat after me, they answered together. It's like chorus, a choral response. They're answering in unison. There was this command and there was this simultaneous, harmonious response. Yes, we will obey. Yes, we will. Amen. Yes, we will obey. Amen. Now, that's the first factor. Oneness. Secondly, there was a desire to know and understand the times. In your notes, I wrote a factor amongst many that cemented these two disciples was serious concern and desire to know and understand the spiritual significance and implications of the times in which they found themselves. Jesus had died, but they were unaware that he had risen from the dead and was alive. Now, the scripture says in verse 14, that they were talking to each other about all these things which had taken place. Amen? Everyone say talking to each other. So they were talking to each other about all these things that had taken place. This is not, as I've said, some light theological discourse, but it was an intense 
desire to understand God's current dealings in the earth. Obviously, you are alive at a critical point in human history. The Savior of the world has just died three days ago. And you want to make sense of your time. You want to understand your chronological time period in which you live. You know you're in a kairos. You know when you're an opportune moment of God. You know that there are certain constituted events that must characterize the season in which you live. And your position is simple. Help me make sense of this. I'm perplexed. Right? The Savior said that he would rise again. Right? We heard a report from these ladies, Mary, the two Marys and Joanna. They said some angels told him he's alive, he's not yet. Don't you remember his words? Right? We think together with all the apostles, this is idle tales. Right? We're full of unbelief. Right? But listen carefully. While there's all of this hesitation and unbelief, I believe there's a sincere desire in their hearts to, to know the truth. That is why Jesus would draw near to them. Eh? I often wonder, if I were Jesus, I would draw near to the eleven. That he walked, he walked the guys for three years. Why ignore those you walked with for three years and you choose these two guys? Even going away from Jerusalem, where all the hive and the hub of activity is, and they're going to hang out in some hot springs. Emmaus, one of the meanings, Emmaus means two things. I'll talk about it now. Earnest longing and hot springs. Warm bots, our warm bots. Okay. These guys are going to chill. Things were too hectic, I think. But more than chill, they were in their hearts. Maybe they were going to a place of rest, just to clear their minds from all the clutter of the events of the day. But there was an earnest longing to know and to understand the events of their time. Because the scripture says they were talking to each other about this. Amen? Uh, in your notes, I'm going to paraphrase what I've written there. You can read this at your leisure in the paragraph. I've indicated that do not align yourself with someone that does not have this priority today. If you're going to walk with someone, make certain you walk with those with whom you can be agreed. And also, agree not just on anything because there's a false sense of unity and oneness. One of the things that's going to sort of um, help you judge the accuracy of joinings in the season is, ask yourself, is the one to whom I am contemplating, walking closely with, does that brother or sister have an urgency as I do to understand the present kairos in God? The present season in God. Why? Why Why is it so essential? You see, because you will have priorities that the other person doesn't have. A lack, the word that I get in my spirit now is indifference. Right? It's like a world war can be going on and someone can be carrying on as normal. And you ask them, hey, why aren't you taking precautions? He says, what, what's happening? I don't even know there's a world war. Oh, bombs. Oh, oh, it's a world war. Oh, sorry. A bit. It's like, it's like, duh, you know. I get indifference. There's some people that are aware, but indifferent. Right? It's like the disciples can sleep in the garden and Jesus crucified in the next chapter. Totally oblivious to the urgency of the hour. 
And I am picking up in my spirit, in, my, in some of my associations, I get often requests for people to walk closely, etc. And I'm thinking, no way I'm going to walk with you. I'm not saying in a bad sense. I'm just honest, being honest. I can't walk with someone that hasn't got a clue of the urgency of the hour in which we live. He's going to affect me with these nonchalant, blasé, carte blanche, indifferent attitude and affect my sense of urgency, not on your life. Hmm? I want to walk with people that are serious. And you that know, understand the times, like the men of Issachar. In First Chronicles 12, 32, it says, of the sons of Issachar who understood the, the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. You see, if you don't know the times, you don't know what to do. top of the next page, if you know the times, you will know what to do. Failure to know the times renders your behavior and activity irrelevant and inaccurate. Further still, you will be prone to negative emotional states. The two disciples were sad, thinking Jesus was not alive. Hmm? Listen carefully. Jesus actually asked them, why are you sad? They said, aren't you a stranger? <laughs> yeah, is depression... Now, let me just say this to you. You are going to contend with negative emotional states in people that are the result of their misunderstanding the times in which we live. And I want to encourage us all not to succumb and be susceptible to inaccurate emotional states because of your inability to understand the urgency of the times. Sadness in that verse is illegal. If they were aware you was alive, it would change how they feel. Your lack of awareness of the urgency and, and what God is doing will make you fall prey to many things psychologically and emotionally. Hmm? You know, right now, where I am in God, it's going to take something major to depress me, honestly. I've made a choice. I will live above disappointment. I will live above depression. There are certain illegalities emotionally in my life that I simply do not have the time nor energy to give attention to. Right? Why? Because I'm aware of certain realities in the spirit. And that knowledge keeps me buoyant above things that will easily trip somebody else up. But for me, because of a knowledge of a on, a, on a different plane, I function differently. You can make yourself immune to the attacks of the enemy in your emotions. Amen? You can make yourself immune. It's like Jesus, they tell him Lazarus is dead. He says, no problem. I'll carry on here at my conference for the next four days before I attend to that issue. It's like, where's this guy from? In, any modern Pentecostal charismatic pastor will drop everything and see to that. He's, let me say, the, that's why I say, if you don't know the times, you give attention to the wrong activity. Look, look at Haggai. Sean blessed us with this in Santon. I just included a thought from, from his sermon. Here. Listen carefully. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people, now, it doesn't say my people. When God says this people, he's not angry. Many times you say my people, it's called by my name, but it says this people. 
You know, this people says, the time has not come, even the time to build the Lord, to build the Lord, sorry, for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, "Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses, while this house lies desolate?" Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts: Consider your, consider your ways. Listen, the people say in verse one. It's not the time. The time has not come. It's not the time to build the temple. God says, it is time to build the temple. The people say, no, it's time to build our panel houses. When you don't understand the demands of a particular time period in God, you give attention to the wrong thing. You start building the wrong thing. I won't have time to read the, the context, but... Like verse 6 says, you sow much, you harvest little, you eat, you're not enough, you're not satisfied. You drink, there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothes and no one is warm enough. He earns, earns wages to put it in a purse with holes. In other words, you always suffer provisional lack when... You give attention to the wrong activity, totally out of sync with the demand of God in that time period. Um, the, the, the panel house temple argument can be applied on many, many, many levels. Uh, right now we're applying it as in the panel house is the local church, the temple is the city church. Many local pastors are so fixated on the panel house, this congregation, my church, and we're not building the, the city representation of God in, the, in Durban. Okay? The church in the city. That's why I belong to forums in our city. It's not just about building this. It's about building the representation of God in our city. Right? But also to, in your notes, for example, I wrote the second bullet. The panel house could be a reference to preoccupation with selfish private pursuits and ambition. And the temple, a preoccupation with the corporate well-being of the church. So you could apply this even locally in this congregation. If you're so fixated on your personal family, personal welfare, to the neglect of the welfare of the corporate house, you fall into this category as well. I think, you asked me, what is the legitimate activity for this time in the current season in reference to what we're speaking about I feel a demand even for our local house and give attention to the development of corporate welfare. Even sometimes, even though you have to make private sacrifices for corporate welfare, you make personal sacrifices to enrich the corporate state of the church. You're doing well. You're demonstrating. It's not about me, myself, and I. There's a bigger picture that I'm giving priority to. That is the demand of the Lord in the, in the current season. To not understand the expectation of God in your time will render your activity illegal and make you prone to lack and want. And you will always, your provision, abundant provision, will always miss you. So I want to encourage you. Know the times. Tell your neighbor, know the times. You see, this revelation comes to those who are, and I I always pray, God, I don't want to be irrelevant. I want to be accurate. I think God in His grace has graced me with 
the ability to receive more revelation and for him to reveal himself to me through his word. Why? There's one thing besides my commitment to oneness amongst this body and even to oneness amongst my peers, my colleagues in the city and in their congregations. It's also my desire to be relevant in the time period in which I find myself. That God will draw near to me to reveal himself to me through the scriptures. Amen? So know him through the word. But be passionate to be accurate in the present season. Okay. Um, Point number three. Another factor that amplifies and hastens and facilitates, if you would, um, the disclosure of God, of himself to you from his word, is the simple fact that without his drawing near to you, you cannot know him. Disclosure requires proximity. Disclosure never happens from a, a distance. And Luke 24, 15 says, While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached. I like this. And he began traveling with them. He joined the journey. The Greek word for discussing is suzetio, which means to investigate jointly. That is to discuss, to controvert, dispute to inquire, question, or reason. So where in Luke 24 it says they were talking and discussing. The term discussing implies a deep level of inquiry. There was this investigation. This was the content of their speech. I said earlier it wasn't a light theological discussion. This was, this was deep talk. These guys were deep, as it were. They were trying to make sense of the events of their day by an investigative discussion. And they were making inquiry, ploying their minds, probably rehearsing things he said about himself, and just trying to understand the events of of their time. Now, here's a reminder from the first session. Remember John 14, 21? Just to quote it to you again. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me and he who loves me will be loved of my father and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. So you have commandments and you keep them. Have and obey. That process of having access to the word and designing an obedient response to it is the ideal process in and through which God is going to disclose himself to you both as father and son. Take those two components out. You'll have no disclosure. Two components are having words and obeying them. Then there's no revelation of God of himself to to you. Now, obviously, these guys were discussing issues relevant to their day. Having commandments and doing them presupposes also that God's word or commandments will form a significant part of your discussion. 
God's word will be in your mouth. Remember the word to Joshua. Joshua 1.8. This book of the law will not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein. When? I just feel, I get this impression, I just feel the word of the Lord has to become more visible in our lives, more dominant, more prioritized than what it is. The Bible mustn't be on the shelf and you access it maybe once a week. It must be visible, accessible. It must characterize your life. Word must be everywhere. Word must be in the entirety of your life. I'm so glad for, for the part that the two bigger boys are, are pursuing, my sons, in that I can, I can see I don't have to talk to them. I never, ever had to talk to them about engaging the word of the Lord. They're doing it spontaneously. They're doing it naturally. And they're doing it more than someone their chronological age would engage the word of the Lord. Why? It's a culture they've grown up in the home with, where the Bible is so central, it's so pivotal to our existence as a, as, a, as a family. And so we see the fruit. Let me just say this to the parents. Don't you neglect your word and expect your children to behave differently. Don't expect different results to formulate when in your life we're not demonstrating to them that this is my focus, my love, my first love. The reason for all of my successes is my devotion to God speaking. Remember last week we, we read a verse where Paul or the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 25 says, Do not refuse him who speaks. To refuse to shun, to avoid, to decline. Do not refuse him who, who speaks. Here's a verse which I love very much. This is in the paragraph before that. I love but I wrote, God is attracted to his word. Where his word is heard and obeyed, he draws near to disclose himself. Also, where there's a focused discussion on his word and ways, he draws near to walk with you to reveal himself. He'll join your journey. Would like the Lord to join your journey. I just love this verse. They were intense discussion, one heart, thoroughly united, wanting to know the times and the seasons, make sense of their world. And Jesus saw that context. He says, yeah, is it. I can, I can make myself proximate. I'll draw near and I will start revealing myself. Why? Because I can see this talk, this conversation, just needs my intervention. Your conversation either attracts God's attention or repels Him. And say that again, your conversation will be attractive to God or repellent to Him. He has a lovely verse in Micah. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. Then those who feared the Lord sp spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. I love the King James rendering of that first part of verse 16. It says, Then they that feared the Lord spake often to one another. When? 
often to one another. It's amazing how I've said this in the past repeatedly, that um, if you get a group of guys together, we can talk on any subject. You talk business, you talk uh, sports, you can talk uh, relationships, you can talk husband, wife, you can talk cars, and but bruise generally. Don't readily converse on eternal things of the word of the Lord. It's amazing. Um, if, if you talk about any of the other things I've mentioned, there's this hive and hype, this unnatural energy attendant with it. Then something spiritual comes up and the guys have no contribution or the intensity of the discussion wanes. Now let me just say this. Nothing must passionately fuel your desire like the word of the Lord. The Bible says they feared the Lord and they spake often to one another. The Lord heard it. He gave attention to it and a book of remembrance was written before him. They will be mine, declares the Lord. Okay? And look what it says. Verse 18. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. There's coming a distinction between um, righteousness and wickedness. Part of the distinction is the content of conversation. What do we talk about when we meet together? Hmm? Distinguish between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. Amen? So a basic point there, the drawing near of the Lord to disclose Himself to you. He is attracted to those um, whose conversation is centered around His eternal word, around His works or His ways. Fourth point, there must be an earnest desire for the word of the Lord. In next week's session, I'm going to focus purely on this topic, on this theme. There's much I want to say about this, but suffice it to say for now um, the following. Say earnest desire. desire. Where were these men? They were from a journey. They were on a journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Seven miles or approximately the equivalent of 12 kilometers distance. And they were walking, right? And Jesus joins them. Emmaus, one of the meanings of the word Emmaus is earnest longing. Earnest desire. Earnest longing. Now, that's why you have to walk with someone with the same desire as you, right? Now, look at how other versions of the Bible frame Amos 3.3, can two walk together unless they be a, lest they be agreed? The New American Standard says, do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? The word agreed in the Hebrew literally means, I checked it out, literally means to make an appointment or to set a target. Hmm? It's not simply about just agreeing as in there's no disunity. It's that, plus it, it also incorporates the idea of reaching out for the same thing, having the same desire, the same ambition. The Amplified says, do two walk together except they make an appointment and have agreed. The message, do two people walk hand in hand if they are not going in the same place? You can't walk with someone if you're going to different destinations. You diverge. Okay? I love the New Living Translation. 
can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? Hmm? Here's a good one for you, potential courting couples. <laughs> Are we agreed? <laughs> Do we have the same goals and ambitions in mind? Or if I start this journey with you, will I find three weeks down the road you taking a detour <laughs> and you headed towards somewhere else? Okay? Now, say it again, earnest longing. I believe that part of the earnest longing, you see they were en route to a place called Emmaus, which means earnest longing. Names in Scripture were not given to identify places or people. We know that. Names in Scripture depict spiritual realities or spiritual locations in the spirit to be imbibed by a person. Their mission to go to that place spoke to something that was overtaking them in their heart. These were men with deep, deep, earnest desire for the things of God. Now, I wrote in bold towards the bottom of that page, at the top of the next page. Divine desire is the fertile ground for divine disclosure. Or, desire for the divine facilitates disclosures of the divine. If you've got no desire, don't expect any disclosure. No desire, no disclosure. I get people, they don't have not even earnest longing, they don't even have even longing. Huh? There's no even inclination. There's no even um, little bit of a flicker of an interest in the word of the Lord. Um, and yet expecting these intense disclosures of God to them. You know what I'm ready for now? I'm saying, God, check my longing out. Not just longing, check the intensity of it. See how I position myself for hours and hours before your word. In prayer and I engage the mirror and the perfect law of liberty. I have this earnest desire. Let me just say this, guess what? He will join the journey. If you are on a journey to the right place, he comes alongside you to literally reveal himself to you. You see, they were talking already, I believe, about the scriptures. And all they needed was light to shed upon what they were discussing about. Right? So I really want to encourage you. Don't give up. Say, don't give up. Be consistent in the word, as I've said. I want, I want to encourage you. The thing that I heard God say to me in writing this today was, sustain desire. Have sustained desire. Desire in most people is far too erratic. Get your peaks, and for one month you're on top, and you're reading your word, and you're intense, and you're waiting on God. God is speaking. And then there's these waning periods where we, 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 we taper off. I, I really want to encourage us. We need a sustained, consistent desire for God and His word. And in that context, He will reveal Himself to us. At Emmaus, he was known to them through the breaking of the bread. And he vanishes from their sight. The Bible says they got up the self-same hour and they hastened to get back to Jerusalem. So they covered at least 24 caves, these guys. I think they didn't walk back. They ran back, probably. 
with joy and excitement. We found him. Let's go correct the unbelief in Jerusalem. Let's go correct the inaccuracy of apostles that walked with him for three years at Jerusalem. So they probably ran back. And I love the scripture which says in Psalm 119, verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments because you have enlarged my, you've enlarged my heart. Let me just say this to us prophetically. I feel the impress of the Lord that we, we need to have so, such profound disclosures from God because of our engagement with His Word. Why? We're going to have to go back to religion that is almost centralized in some quarters, Jerusalem, to correct some inaccuracies, to correct dispositions, to correct views of God and His ways. Amen? So I want to encourage you, particularly the young people, don't lose your desire for God's Word. I remember as a youth, there was a period where I would read my old King James hard black-covered Bible backwards and forwards. Read the whole Gospel of John. I recall I was in grade 10, standard 8, uh, Miss Africa, a teacher I'll never forget, a huge Afro. Lovely, dramatic English teacher. Oh, drama. I mean, she was the height of drama, but powerful, effective teacher. And um, I recall the one day she shouted at me, Randolph, are you reading your Bible again? Literally, my reputation was known as one who reads his Bible in the class. And when she shouted at me, you know we say of those lids? You know when we you pick up those lids? I had my head in the desk, and I had this King James Bible open to John, I recall. John 8, and I'm busy reading and circling and underlining. And I want to encourage you, that desire for the word of the Lord has never, ever left me. I feel at odds. I feel out of sync. I feel not myself when I don't engage the word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the word of the Lord. Okay, fifth point. Hold fast to the carrier of the word of the Lord. Hold fast to the carrier of the word. So they're en route to Emmaus. Jesus joins them and he begins to open the scripture, the Bible says, and he explains to them from the law and the prophets the things concerning him, self. Nearing Emmaus, as they got closer to the village, he pretends that he's going to go further. And I believe this was an assessment for these two disciples. The Bible says they urged him to stay with him for the night. He reclined at the table, broke bread, and they recognized him as the risen Christ. They recognized him as the risen Christ. So listen carefully. If they had succumbed to the temptation not to urge him to remain, would they have known him in terms of his true identity? Not. He would have went and they would have, their moment would have passed them by. They would have missed the time of their, of their visitation, as it were. Thank God they urged him to stay. What was the factor that promoted or prompted them 
to, 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 to urge Jesus to stay. In later on in their testimony, they said, Did not our hearts burn within us while he walked with us and talked with us on the road to Emmaus? Right? At the point of the urging Jesus, they did not know it was Jesus. All they knew, yet is someone who when he talks about the scriptures, he unveils Christ to us. They did not know it was Christ. They only knew it was Christ after he broke bread, reclining at the table. Not so? So I I want to exhort us all. Hold fast to the one that brings Christ to you through the scriptures. Never let him go. In most contexts, that is the, the man or woman that God has placed over your life as your spiritual father. When he speaks, he speaks the word of the Lord, which is spirit and life to you. In that speaking is the possibility for Christ to disclose himself to you. So even when he wants to go further, say, no, stay. Maybe I speak prophetically. (laughs) I'm just joking. I want to encourage you, like Ruth clung to Naomi, hold on to the carrier of grace. Because that vessel will release words of life to you in an hour that you need it. And in the release of the word of the Lord to you is the potential for Christ to unveil himself to you through the release of those words. Hold fast. Tell your neighbor, hold fast. Now, fathering, another principle, I believe, that caused Jesus simply to unpack himself to these two. There were two disciples, eh? The one is unnamed, and the, one is, the one's name is identified. His name is Cleopas. So it was Cleopas and an unnamed disciple. The meaning of Cleopas is, I like this, the whole glory. Cleopas. It also means renowned father or distinguished father or acclaimed father. Okay? Now, we know that names in Scripture depict... Nature and function. So Cleopas portrays the features which are ideal for the Lord to disclose himself and to give understanding of his, of his purpose. Right? You see, it's to no other person. And I don't think his, the mention of his name is coincidental. It's to Cleopas and an unnamed disciple that disclosures happen. The man is not simply Cleopas as in I use the name to identify who I am. He is Cleopas because he's that nature. He's that way. That's his character. That is his nature. This guy's nature is, I am a depiction of the whole glory. I am a depiction of an accurate spiritual fathering principle that is worthy of renown and acclaim. Now, listen carefully. Take those two things. The whole glory. You want to say the whole glory. Glory is a representation of the exact nature of God. The whole glory means the most complete representation of all the multifaceted dynamics in God. Right? His glory is who He is. His nature, His character, His representation. Cleopas is a representation of the whole glory. It's like God in His fullness. 
But now also, Cleopas means renowned father, right? Is a representation of the fathering of fathering that is celebrated and acclaimed. So take those two ideas together: the whole glory, the complete representation of all the multifaceted dynamics in God, and renowned father worthy of acclaim. Put them together. Cleopas is indicative of one who embodies the nature of God as Father in its fullest and complete sense, a mature expression of God as Father. Listen carefully. If there's something that is um, so accurately representative of the nature of God, it's Father. We sang that song yesterday. They call you many things, but your favorite name is is Father. Father is that essential quality within God that makes Him God. Right? Paul says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Fathering is, is quintessentially who He is. He is fatherly in His disposition. And if we can develop the fathering principle in this house, we have the potential to display the whole glory of God. To put His fullness on display. That is not just the preserve of the spiritual father of the house. Because you are sons, in you is the spirit of father also. Because the son is also the everlasting father. And to us a child is born, a son is given. His name, his nature is everlasting father. So the entire house, both the father and spiritual sons, have a responsibility to manifest the nature of the Heavenly Father in their world. And as this dynamic grows, what we're going to see is greater revelations and disclosures. The drawing near of God to us, as He did to Cleopas, to reveal Himself to us in very, very significant ways. Amen. Right, last point. This I love, left this for last. Apostle Thamo taught us this at several schools. In fact, at the Apostolic Schools of Ministry in Peter Marisburg, Thamo uses Luke 24 as the framework for the school. He will reference it usually at the first session at the start of every school. And I love um, the methodology employed by the Lord. Thamo calls this the post-resurrection methodology for revealing Christ. It's post-resurrection. It's a way in which he's chosen. He's going to disclose himself. He did it not through an appeal to physical evidence. See my hands, see my feet initially. He did it by an appeal to the written text. Moses, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms eventually. I consult the text to show you who I am. You ignore the text, you will never see me. So what does he do? Right? The bottom of the first paragraph, he does three things. He opened the scriptures, he opened their eyes, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You've got to understand these three dynamics. Jesus opened the scriptures, he opened their eyes to see who he is, and then he opens their minds. To understand the, to understand the, the scriptures. Now recall, the eyes were prevented from 
from recognizing him, the scripture says. But verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The Greek word for explained is the menu, which means literally to explain thoroughly, clearly, and exactly. I like that. To explain clearly, thoroughly, and exactly. To translate, to expound, to interpret, to unfold the meaning of what is said. To unfold the meaning of what is said. To the Pharisees, he said in John 5.39, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Jesus is saying all the scriptures testify and speak about who I am. You can't read the truth without uncovering the person of truth. Like we said, truth is not a set of principles. Truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. Whenever you read the truth, your, no your knowledge and study of the principles of the written truth must always reveal to you the person of truth. Right? Theology is not a set of doctrines to be learned. Right? Your learning must culminate in ex subjective, experiential knowledge of the person of, of truth. So Jesus demonstrates this principle of how you can know me through the text. Next week I'm going to demonstrate this to you for your personal private world. I will show you next week how that each of you, Kiri, as young as you are, you can... Did you know that God has hidden you in the book? You can lead yourself out from these scriptures and discover what God made you to be like and what to do. We'll demonstrate that for you next week. I'm saying all of this as a framework in which we're going to unpack some other things next week. But he takes the word... And I just picture Jesus as a boy growing up under Joseph's tutelage, his father. Like any good Jewish boy, he had to learn the Torah virtually by heart. Those boys knew it. I can check this guy out at 13, 14. He's saying, hey, I'm there. You know, Jesus discovered things about himself growing up in the world. Destiny was defined. He, if he neglected his scriptures, he wouldn't be confident in his call. Amen? You know, Joyce, you can read about yourself in the, in the Bible. And then one day you can stand up and say, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I've just read about myself in the Bible. That dynamic is a powerful thing. I can't tell you, some of my most assuring positions, confident positions... I have today did not come from some prophet telling me, thus saith the Lord, you're going to be like this, you will do this. Some of my most confident, uh, immovable, dogmatic positions about I know what I'm, I'm doing is right in God have come about through me studying privately the word of the Lord and God confirming certain things because I've seen myself in his book. All my days are written in your book even before one of them comes to pass. Amen? Read about yourself. He wrote it for you. I'll say it again. Read about yourself. 
in the book. He wrote it for you. Now, he, so he, he opened the scriptures to expound or explain accurately things about himself to them. Secondly, the Bible says he opened their eyes. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. This was after he broke bread. And they, he vanished from there. He vanished from their sight. Now listen carefully. I really believe the opening of the eyes was something actual. Right? It was something tangible. They now see him as Jesus Christ. Or Christ Jesus, to be exact. Right? He's now the resurrected Christ, which is Christ Jesus. They now see him for who he is. And he's known to them and recognized to them in the breaking of the in the breaking of the bread. But that unveiling happened in a culture. The context in your notes is, the context was one of an apostolic culture in which the four principles of Acts 4, 2.42 are solidly established within an environment of a household of faith. These principles are apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and, and prayers. Now we know that Acts 2.42, they, they continued steadfastly in apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. There are four things that characterize an apostolic community. Now, where you have that culture, everyone say culture. culture. What I'm trying to inculcate within this house, and for those of you visiting, is this. Certain dynamics you've got to install within your life for God to draw near to you and show himself to you through his word. Part of the opening of your eyes is going to come because you've established a culture. And a culture is not an event. A culture is a consistent uh, character of lifestyle that you do habitually almost every single day of your, of your life. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So apostles' doctrine, Scripture says he opened up there, he opened the scriptures. That's an indication of apostolic doctrine. Fellowship. He reclined at the table and he broke bread and he shared grace. By the way, fellowship is not socializing. We often say, let's go have fellowship on the soccer field. That's not fellowship. Fellowship, that, that's, that's a good time socialize, not fellowship. It can, it, let me say this, it can paint the context for fellowship. But in and of itself, it's not fellowship. Fellowship is koinonia, the Greek word, means to share the life of Christ one with the other, to share grace, right, as we exchange. I learn of the Christ in you, you learn it from the Christ in, in me. And he demonstrates this by reclining at the table. You know, Jesus' revelations of himself were not from pulpits. They were in ordinary homes, sitting on the sofa and discussing and talking, right? Breaking of bread, they broke bread together, celebrated the Lord's table. And prayers. I believe prayers is demonstrated in this narrative as the city Emmaus, which means earnest longing. It speaks of a devotional, the devotional quality of one's, of one's life. And I, I want to say this to us. In that house, everyone say house. That's why I say it's a culture, it's a household, it's a, not just a church, it's a family is headed by a spiritual father. 
the, the era of pastors and members is obsolete. We don't have pastors and members. It's now spiritual sons with the spiritual father that guides you in your destiny until you reach maturity in your walk in Christ. In that community, the four pillars of an apostolic community are observed. Apostolic doctrine, there's word, there's the opening of the scriptures to reveal Christ. There's fellowship, there's a sharing of grace, of the life of Christ, one with the other. There's the breaking of bread as we commemorate the Lord's table, uh, as the foundational to our work of salvation. And there's a strong devotional life, our worship, our prayer, our priestly ministry of engaging the Lord in the heavens. When those four principles are in place, I want to encourage you, eyes can be opened. Eyes can be opened. Listen carefully. What did they see? They saw the literal Christ. Oh, it's you. Reclining on the sofa. It's amazing. And when they knew it was him, he vanished. He somewhat disappeared. Why? He did not have the same body he died with. He now had a resurrected body that you and I are all going to have, by the way. You can appear and disappear at will. How's that? Can't wait. Now you see me? Now you don't. (laughs) That body, you could engage the heavens and come back and engage the earth. It's called a resurrected. You could walk through walls. You could walk through physical objects. Superman. Superman Superman can't even do that, can he? No, he can't do that. He'll be better than Superman. They see... Not the Christ they knew before he died. They see him in his glorified, resurrected state. A reality was unveiled to them. The word made flesh became a reality in their view. And lastly, he opened up their minds to understand the scripture. Now please, this is where I'm at. This is what I want to encourage you about. The Bible says he opened up the scriptures expounded himself. He opened their eyes to see who he really was. Then it says, listen carefully. I mean, he vanishes from their sight. These guys get up. They somehow hit a 12-mile fun run <laughs> back to Jerusalem. They come to Jerusalem. They see the 11 and other disciples still gathered together in a state of inertia. Inertia means you're not going anywhere. You're staying in the same. You're stuck. Right? At least they traveled. <laughs> there was some movement and migration with them. Right? These, the original 11, and the Judas will be trading so longer, so there's no longer 12. Judas is dead. So the 11 and others are still in a state of unbelief. Right? So they report to them of all that transpired and how that it was known to us in the breaking of the bread. Did not our hearts burn when he spake to us the the scriptures. And then suddenly Jesus appears in the room. Just at will appears. He's here. They all scared that things as a spirit. He, he allays their fears. No, it's me. Check my hands. The marks. Feel my side. Even in his glorified body, he chose to have the marks of the crucifixion. Right? It's, it is me. Don't worry. Relax. He said, peace be with you. Right? He realized they're a bit fluxed. Right? Peace be with you. Now, to this extended group of disciples, he starts to unpack the scriptures from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. 
but not just unpack it, he now gives them the skill for them to do it themselves. Because the Bible says he doesn't open the scriptures like he did previously. It says he opened their minds to know the scriptures. You see, I can open the scriptures. Or I can open your mind for you to know the scriptures. What is he doing now? He's now imparting grace for them to further uncover him when he's gone through the scriptures. He's now giving them the tools. He's now giving them the skill still to know him even when he's gone. What is his methodology of revealing himself? He will disclose himself to you through the, the word. Okay? And I believe very strongly tonight. In this session tonight, there is grace present here. For you not just to learn things from me as I explain the scriptures. For you to go home tonight and in your personal private time as you engage the word. Guess what? You will have the skill and open mind to know Christ through the scriptures. Under this grace, you can do it. You can do it for yourself. Amen? You can do it for yourself. Who's discovering as you read the Bible now? Like Christ is jumping out of the pages at you. I see him. Oh, I can see something about Christ. I've just learned something. If you read, if you just it's simply a reader of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, check out Jesus interacts with various people. I see something of his reality. Right? And guess what? Every time you see him, you become, you become transformed by what you see into that same image from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18. I'm going to talk more about that next week. Right? From glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So repeat after me. He opened the Scriptures. He opened their eyes. And he opened their minds to know the Scriptures. Very important. He opened the Scriptures. He opened their eyes. Then he opened their minds to know the Scriptures. Right? Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that you might know right, the hope of your calling. David prayed in Psalm 119, Open my eyes, that I might behold the wonderful things in thy, in thy law. I might behold the wonderful things in thy law. Okay, let's conclude. The scriptures unveil and clarify every season in God. If you want to make sense of any epoch, any time period you're living in, you will never make sense of the time, your times, without your study of the, of the word of the Lord. Now, it's amazing what Jesus called them. Eh? He called them fools and slow of heart to believe. In verse 25 of Luke 24. When they were sad, didn't believe he's alive, he says, Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said about me. Right? Now, listen carefully. The word fools is anonetos, neotos. Basically means you lack intelligence. Any Greek word starting A-N means without. Neo or nuos is the mind. Jesus is saying you have no mind. 
you are like, you got no spiritual IQ. You're dull spiritually. Right? You know, some people are dull mathematically. <laughs> some people are not spiritually, let's say, uh, in a specific realm or field. Right? But listen carefully. The thing you need to develop is your spiritual IQ. Right? Your spiritual IQ needs to upgrade. You know why? If you don't engage the word, you're going to be a fool in this season. You're going to be one with no spiritual brains. And because of that, you will be uh, sluggish. The word bradus is the Greek for slow, slow of heart. It's like you take long to come into the revelation of a thing. Why? You are dragging your heels. You're slow of heart, Jesus said, to believe all that the, the prophets have spoken. I wrote in, you know, let me read this before we go. Whenever you neglect the process of being under revelation of the person of Christ through the medium of his word, which comes to you through a spiritual father, then your capacity to make sense of the spiritual significance of any hour in which you live is severely impaired. Your spiritual cognitive capacity is limited, and then you will also become slow of heart to believe a prophetic word embedded within should be the written word which is designed to give understanding of the time in which you live in his first encounter with them on the road to Emmaus he could only revealed reveal two dimensions of the word the law and the prophets because of the state of the hearts in which which he described as foolish men and slow of heart to believe remember because they are foolish and slow of heart to believe, he could only speak from two dimensions of Scripture. But once they knew where he was and ran back to the other eleven and other disciples in Jerusalem, he came there and started revealing himself from three dimensions. Law, prophets, and the Psalms. Once at Emmaus, symbolic of attaining an earnest desire of their hearts, their eyes were opened, their faith elevated, and they returned to share this experience with the rest of the disciples at Jerusalem. Here, he revealed himself from the Lord, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now listen carefully. Everyone say, and the Psalms. When you read the Psalms, what do you pick up? What are all the Psalms about? Personal, private experiences. Hmm? He was able to lead himself from the Psalms to them. The Psalm speaks of one's subjective personal experience with the word this is where doctrine becomes part of your personal life it's like the opportunity for the word becoming flesh and being manifested within your life i want to encourage you i'm on a journey too like you are i'm on to a place called earnest longing i want that destination to be arrived at I wanted to so characterize my life. When people see me, they say, yes, one who loves God's word with his whole heart. A person who loves God's word, God will come close to you and start to reveal himself to you from the scriptures. Chanel, you're ready for disclosures of the Lord. Tell you that, but simply position yourself. So, I mean, just, just create the context 
You see, God is like so wanting to show you things, but you're so busy with this and that, helter skelter. Engaging the world is the last thing on your agenda, and you expect His nature. You only become natured into His image by what you see of Him, and He has chosen in His sovereign wisdom only to reveal Himself to you in and through His Word. Neglect his word and you neglect or negate or abort the sheer possibility of being like him in your world. The power of representation is reduced, is impacted negatively in a very severe manner when you do not engage the word of the Lord. So I want to encourage you, walk to your Emmaus and also find someone like-minded with whom you can be agreed And go to the same destination. Don't walk with the wrong company. I cannot tolerate in this season to be close to anybody who does not love God's word. It will irritate the life out of me. What are we going to talk about when I want to engage the perfect law of liberty and you don't have any contribution? They were discussing and talking one with the other. And he drew near. Malachi, please remember Malachi 3.16. Them that feared his name spake often one to her, and the Lord was attentive to it. And a book of remembrance was written out for them. Amen? So I want to encourage you, expect disclosures of the Lord.